part two. We talked last week about the dual remedy for our sins, the blood and the cross. That the blood of Jesus has saved us from the penalty of sins. And that the cross of Jesus has saved us from the power of sins because we have been crucified with him and we are resurrected with him and we reign with him and his and his wonderful, glorious grace. Now, this morning, before we get underway, let's have a word of prayer. And then I'd like to share some things with you out of my heart, and we trust that God will use this for his glory. Father in God, we thank you so much for the day you've given us, a day that is glorious and true. And Father, we thank you that you deliver us from evil. And you deliver us from the evil one who would defeat us at every turn if he could. But we have victory in Christ Jesus. And we thank you for that because it is a spiritual fact. It's true. It's been done. It was done at the cross. That sin was defeated once and for all through Christ and for the blood of the Lamb who was shed for us. Lord, we come this morning. We ask that you would open our eyes. Indeed, as we sung just a few moments ago, open our eyes that we might see Jesus. Open our ears that we might hear your truth, God, not because I speak, but, oh, Father, heaven forbid, but that your Holy Spirit would speak this morning, that Christ Jesus would be lifted up even as he was on the cross, dying for our sins once and for all. Thank you, Father, that we serve a resurrected Savior who sits at the right hand of your throne in grace. He is worthy of all honor and glory and power and dominion and majesty forever and ever. In his name we pray. Amen. As I shared with you last week, uh, we had really kind of, in terms of what Paul had preached, we had learned much. But at the same time that Paul was preaching this series of sermons on Romans, I was reading a book by Watchman Nee called The Normal Christian Life. And it's about Romans. And Watchman Nee is relatively known, well-renowned for this book called The Normal Christian Life. And that's on which we base our sermon this morning, The Normal Christian Life. What is that? What does that mean? And who was Watchman Nee? Let's talk a little bit for just a moment about him, because I think he's an important character, and I think that this this slide kind of illustrates something. I realized when I was researching his life this weekend that essentially he was born six days before my father in 1903, my dad was born on November the 10th, and Watchman Nee was born on November the 4th. And he was the third of nine children, and he was born to Christian parents. As a matter of fact, his grandfather was a Christian missionary and had been for many years. So he was a third-generation Christian, but he grew up being educated in the classical Chinese sense and, and all the things that were classic Chinese back in those days. And yet he resented that because... The missionary's education was looked upon by many Chinese as being something that smacked of colonialism. It was second rate as far as they were concerned. And he was not only educated in the classical Chinese studies, but he also was educated in the Bible. And he came to a saving knowledge because of an experience actually that happened with his mother as she met the Lord Jesus Christ one day in, uh, in uh, well, when he was 17. Uh, that very night, because she had really persecuted him and had accused him and punished him severely in front of all the family uh, and had humiliated him, she had come to the conviction of that 
And she realized who Jesus was and that he had forgiven her of her sins. And she had to make a profound profession uh, of that and also apologize with all of her heart to Watchman Nee. And when he, she did that, that's when he came to the, uh, the fact of his salvation in Christ Jesus. And he accepted Jesus personally. You know, many of us grew up in the church. I certainly did all my life. I cannot remember when I didn't go to church. But there comes a time when in our life we realize who Jesus is. And we receive him as Lord and Savior. And Watchman Nee did that at age 17. And yet he knew that there was not enough. There was something missing. And he really was, because of his pursuit of the deeper truths of the word, he came to be baptized in the Holy Spirit and had that, that crisis experience at, uh, at age 22, or actually about 1922, I should say. And uh, matter of fact, was engaged at that time to be married, and his wife had not come to a real saving knowledge, though she was, too, a child of Christian parents. And he had put off the engagement, or put off the marriage, actually, uh, as a result of that, and had delayed for a while until she came to the, to the saving knowledge of Jesus. And then also he was mentored by a, a missionary. Her name was, uh, was, was Margaret Barber. And she introduced him to such writers as Andrew Murray and Evan, uh, and I should say Evan uh, uh, Roberts, who was really instrumental in the great Welsh revival. And many others. And matter of fact, as you look at the next slide, he studied the, the lives and writings of many Christian authors and, and some of the giants of our faith, like Dwight L. Moody and, and actually A.B. Simpson. And came to a real serious study of the word as he began to, uh, to really delve into God's word. Now, you know, he wrote over 50 books, but actually he'd only really set out to write one book. But because of his series of sermons and lectures and the magazine articles that he wrote, he was an editor of a magazine, a Christian publication, uh, they, they were able to take all these sermons and lectures and compile them into many different books, among them being The Normal Christian Life. Another famous book of his was Sit, Walk, Stand, which are the three words describing essentially Ephesians. That's the, out, the basic outline of Ephesians. Sit, walk, stand. But here we have this morning, and I, and I pay attention to this because he was talking about the four conditions that uh, relate to the normal Christian life. But let me say something else before I go to this. He actually married a lady by the name of Charity Chain. She was the daughter of a CNMA pastor, a Christian Missionary Alliance pastor in China. And, uh, and then, you know, they never had any children. And he got involved in a business venture after he had really uh, been excommunicated from uh, the denomination in which he belonged at the time. And really got to the point where he was very exclusive in, in some of his viewpoints. And, you know, there's no, there's no way. If, if you study a man and realize that every single person, every man and woman, have feet of clay. None of us are perfect. None whatsoever. We all have flaws and faults, and sometimes they're more obvious than others. If you read some of his biographies, you'll, you'd come out thinking he was a saint beyond comprehension. But if you read some of the other biographies that were written of him, very realistic biographies, you realize he had feet of clay. But yet, he was a man who studied God's word intensely. And yet, in, in 1952, after his, I mean, really, probably the, the most 
critical time of his life was in the late 30s and the 40s when he was ministering in probably his most powerful way. Yet he was accused by the Chinese of, uh, of subversion, and they imprisoned him in 1952, and he was imprisoned for the rest of his life for 20 years until he died in, in 1972. I mean, that's just an amazing thing to think about, uh, that here's a man who had written such fantastic works about, on the Word of God, and yet he was in prison for the last 20 years of his life and completely shut up. Well, let's talk about what he had to say about Romans. And he says there are four conditions necessary to, to fulfill and to experience the normal Christian life. Those four points are this. Knowing, reckoning, presenting, and then walking. Very four simple words. Knowing, reckoning, presenting, and walking. Let's talk specifically about what that means. And if you will, open up your Bibles to Romans chapter 6 for a moment. We're going to talk about those first three conditions, and we're going to talk about the last one in particular. But as you look at Romans chapter 6, let's begin in verse 5. For if we have become united with him in the likeness of his death, certainly we shall also be in the likeness of his resurrection. Knowing this, that our old self was crucified with him in order that our body of sin might be done away with, so that we would no longer be slaves to sin, for he who has died is freed from sin. Now we talked about the dual remedy For our sins. We talked about sins, plural. That's the blood of the Lamb that takes away our sins, that cleanses us from our sins. We have the forgiveness of our sins, those transgressions which we have committed against God. We also talked about the cross delivering us from the power of sin, singular, meaning that sin nature that's inherent in us. The sin nature. We have sins, but those have been cleansed by the blood of the Lamb. We have a sin nature, but that has been conquered by the cross through his crucifixion. And the first point about knowing is there in verse 6 of chapter 6, knowing this, that our old self was crucified, was crucified with him. Now, what does this mean? And you'll see there in verse 5, it says, For we have become united with him in the likeness of his death, certainly we shall also be in the likeness of his resurrection. So therefore, the crucifixion and resurrection of Jesus is representative and it is inclusive. You and I have experienced it because of him and through him and by him. We have it to ourselves. It is a part of us. In 1 Corinthians chapter 1, verse 30, it says, For by his doing you are in Christ Jesus who has become to us wisdom from God and righteousness and sanctification and redemption. Because of what God has done through Christ, we've been crucified with him, and we have experienced because of him and through him and with him the resurrection as well as the crucifixion before that. And we have been able to arise into newness of life as a consequence of that. So what does this knowing mean? Knowing, first of all, comes by revelation. It is by revelation that we know it. 
It's not something that we conjure up for ourselves. It's something that God reveals to us. Do you recall when Jesus was speaking to his disciples, and he said to them, Who do men say that I am? And they replied, Some say you're John the Baptist. Some say you're Elijah. Some say you're Jeremiah or one of his prophets. But then he again asked them, he says, But who do you say I am? And Simon Peter said, You are the Christ, the Son of the living God. And Jesus replied to him, Simon Barjona, Simon, son of Jonah, blessed are you, for flesh and blood have not revealed this to you, but my Father in heaven. Flesh and blood have not revealed this to you, but my Father in heaven. Knowing this, that our old man, our old self, was crucified with him, is not something that comes, that we conjure up ourselves, but it's something that has happened, it is a fact, it is true, and we have experienced it in Jesus, and it is something that is revealed to us by God himself. Flesh and blood have not revealed this to you, but my Father in heaven. It also says in Ephesians 1.17, that the God of our Lord Jesus Christ, the Father of our glory, the Father of glory, may give to you a spirit of wisdom and of revelation and the knowledge of him. A spirit of wisdom and revelation and the knowledge of him. It comes from God. There's nothing that we can do about it. It comes from God. Let's talk a little bit about another aspect of this, and that's called reckoning. That's an old-fashioned word. It's quite common in the King James, but I think it has applicability here. Obviously, it was used because that was the language in which uh, Watchman E was studying the scriptures, but reckoning has a great connotation to it. More than consider it. It says, even so, consider yourselves dead to sin but alive to God in the New American Standard Version. But reckon yourselves dead to sin and alive to God. Now, what does that mean? Reckoning has a very root kind of connotation to it that's mathematical in nature, if you will, or scientific, in that in the mathematical or accounting sense of the word, it means the accounts are settled. The issue's done, it's settled, finished, it's finalized. Your account has been reckoned, it is finalized, it's done, it's paid for. In the scientific sense of the word, you've often heard that someone takes a reckoning when they're at sea to find out just exactly where they are. That is a positioning that is required, so it's an accurate means by which we measure where we are. Reckoning in this case means that we have, we come to the final conclusion based on fact, scientific fact, if you will, that we have been, indeed, made dead to sin. Consider yourselves, reckon yourselves, dead to sin, but alive to Christ. And this is knowing that we have been crucified with him. This is the representative and inclusive aspect of the crucifixion of our Lord. Reckoning. And by the way, what it is not is this. It is not imagining. It's not pretending. It's not visualizing. And what's, that's something we do in our society in these days and ages, especially we talk about visualizing something. That's not what the, 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 the Apostle Paul was asking us to do. He's asking us to consider as accomplished fact that we are dead to sin, but alive to Christ. That's accomplished. So can you, can you understand that? Can you understand, and by the revelation of God, knowing that the old, old man was crucified with Christ, 
and that we have been made dead to sin, but alive to Christ. We can reckon ourselves dead. And this appeal is further affirmed in the, the 12th chapter of Romans when he says, I urge you, brethren, by the mercies of God, that you present your bodies a living sacrifice, holy and acceptable to God, which is your reasonable service. And that's what he's appealing to us to do, to do just that. Let's talk about presenting for a moment. That's the third point. And he says this. And let's look at verse 13 of chapter 6 for a moment. Actually, beginning in verse 12. It says, Therefore, do not let sin reign in your mortal body, so that you obey its lust. And do not go on presenting the, the members of your body to sin as instruments of unrighteousness. But present yourselves to God as those alive from the dead, and your members as instruments of righteousness to God. For sin shall not be master over you, for you are not under the law, but under grace. So, present yourselves to God as those alive from the dead, knowing, reckoning, presenting ourselves to God. And what does this mean? First, we must have a sense of God's possession of us if we are ever to have a sense of his presence within us. Meaning essentially that Christ in us, Christ in you, the hope of glory, as Paul wrote in Colossians. It is no longer I who live, but Christ lives in me. Coming to that realization, as Paul did and stated in in Galatians 2.20, that it is no longer I who live, but Christ who lives in me. And so therefore, I am to present myself to God as those who are alive from the dead. And further on, in the next slide, it says, presenting ourselves is coming to a complete agreement with this scripture. And it's there in, in 1 Corinthians chapter 6, verses 19 and 20. For the scripture says, Or do you not know that your body is a temple of the Holy Spirit? who is in you, who you have from God, and that you are not your own. For you have been bought with a price. Therefore, glorify God in your body. Can you come to a complete agreement with that? What Paul has stated, that you are not your own, but you have been bought with the precious blood of Jesus. That blood was shed for you and me. That we might be freed from the penalty of our sins. And on the cross, we have been freed from the power of our sins as we present ourselves to him as those who are alive from the dead. So what does this mean if I present myself in this way? It really comes to this point that we really are agreeing that we're going to consecrate ourselves to God. If you're like me, and I pray that you're not, but if you are, you might have experienced in your own life uh, I can remember when I made the, the decision to consecrate myself to God. And it just simply was a decision that was, I couldn't understand how, how anybody who could have done this could live the life that I lived. Could have done the things that I did. So why was sin so predominant over me? What is it that I had done, that I had consecrated? You know, see, the fact, the fact is, is that we have a tendency Getting to this point where we think we do this, and that's the issue, and it's nothing else to be done. 
and that something else from that point else is going to change, and in maybe some cases, some people's like that. But let me tell you something. In my case, it didn't. I struggled with sin as if I had never consecrated myself at all. So what happened? What went wrong? The next slide kind of tells us this. And that is caution. Romans 7 is here for a reason. Between the three points that we have in Romans chapter 6 of knowing, reckoning, and presenting ourselves to God as those who are dead to sin and alive to him, we have a we have a chapter in Romans 7. And it deals with this. So let's look at Romans 7 for just a moment. And I want you to turn to Romans chapter 7, verse 4. And it says this in verse 4, Therefore, my brethren, you also were made to die to the law through the body of Christ, so that you might be joined to another by him, or to him who was raised from the dead, in order that we might bear fruit for God. Let me repeat that just one more time. Therefore, my brethren, you have been made to die to the law through the body of Christ. For what reason? So that you might bear fruit to him. Now, why are we saying that? Indeed, if, indeed, we have been cleansed of our sins by the blood of the Lamb, if we have been saved from the power because we have been freed from sin, uh, deriving my benefits, sanctification, eternal life by his crucifixion, as it says in 6.22, I need to understand I've been freed from the law. I have been freed from the law, being made to die to the law through the body of Christ so that I might bear fruit for God. Now, being freed from the law, it's easy to think once we consecrate ourselves to him, and once we make that decision, that I'm no longer my own, but I belong to him because I've been bought with a price. And so therefore the issue seems to be settled, but yet it doesn't seem to be settled. And we find ourselves living under the power of sin. And we strive mightily with all of our heart and mind and soul. and Everything we do, as I, I described to you last week, the things that I went to, the elaborate ends of having this personal vision statement and mission statement and posting it on my bathroom wall so I could see it daily, and yet it made not one whit of difference in life, the way I was to live. It just didn't help me one bit, because I was striving mightily to do it myself. And I was trying to live to the law. The fact of the matter is, the law is perfect and holy and good. The law is righteous because the law reflects the very character of God in His righteousness in his perfection and holiness. And I am as unholy as it gets. There is none righteous, no, not one. And how can someone who is unrighteous keep that which is righteous? It is impossible. It cannot be done. It cannot be done. Because we're striving to do it in our flesh. And as greatly as we might consecrate ourselves to God, and as earnestly and as honestly as we admit that with all of our heart, this is something we want to do, if we try to do it on our own, we cannot do it. We have to be crucified with Christ. We have to reckon ourselves dead to sin and alive to God. We have to present our bodies as living sacrifices, which is our reasonable service of worship. So, caution. Romans 7 is there, and as it summarizes in verse 24, he says, Wretched man that I am, who will free me 
from the body of this death? The answer comes in the very following verse. Thanks be to God, through Jesus Christ our Lord. There is therefore no condemnation to those who are in Christ Jesus. You cannot keep the law as as much as you strive and earnestly as you try. It cannot be done. It is impossible. It is because of the righteousness that is imputed to us by the blood of Jesus. That is how he has fulfilled the law in every way for us. And we then need to trust in his crucifixion and his resurrection so that we might walk in newness of life in a different way. And that's where we come to the very next point. Walking. Knowing. Reckoning. Presenting. Walking. Not according to the flesh, but according to the Spirit. Let's look at chapter 8, verse 4, for just a moment. Actually, let's begin in verse 3 of chapter 8. For what the law could not do, weak as it was through the flesh, God did, sending his own Son in the likeness of sinful flesh, and as an offering for sin, he condemned sin in the flesh, so that the requirement of the law might be fulfilled in us, who do not walk according to the flesh, but according to the Spirit. Who walk, and that's what it really means, according to to the Spirit, who walk and walk, translated, live in some cases. Meaning this, that we live and move and have our being in Him. Walking is not a work. Walking is a walk. But let's get this, let's get this straight. It requires an effort on our behalf. You know, if we're going to get up and leave here, we're going to walk out of this auditorium this morning... We're going to have to arise from your seat, and you're going to have to expend the energy of pointing yourself toward that door and walking out today. So it requires some effort on your behalf. And yet, you see, it's more than just that. And it's something that we don't want to get tied up so that we are back to the law trying to keep the rules and regulations of the law because we never will be able to do it. It will frustrate us to no end. So if we walk according to the Spirit, not according to the flesh, but according to the Spirit, that means that essentially we're making a conscious choice to seek God. We're making a conscious choice in every way to pursue Him, as A.W. Tozer wrote about the pursuit of God. Now, that effort I spoke about, I can kind of relate to the fact of this. I can remember distinctly back in November of 1989 when I had a double bypass, and I can remember my last awakening time before they wheeled me into the surgery was when Rita was working or walking by me on the gurney, and I can just remember, and I passed out. And then the next thing I remember, after I had spent several hours on the heart-lung machine, and I had no out-of-body experience, by the way, during that time, but I, I can remember very distinctly they talking to me in the uh, uh, recovery room, Mr. Burnett, Mr. Burnett, breathe. Breathe. And I thought to myself, when I heard that, you know, I don't have to do that. I don't have to breathe if I don't want to. But then I took my first breath off the heart and lung machine for the first time after several hours. But after I decided to take that first breath, it came naturally after that. And I've been breathing ever since, thanks be to God. <clears throat> and I will continue breathing until he 
draws this to a, conclu- to a close according to his will. But the fact remains is that I had to make a choice. I had to make a choice to breathe. And I did. And you see, that's the way it is with God, walking according to the Spirit. I have to make the choice to do this. And I think Luke 9.23 summarizes something very well when he says, it's the choice that Jesus said, if anyone would come after me, let him deny himself and take up his cross weekly? No. Monthly? No. Whenever you feel like it? No. Once a year at Easter and Christmas? No. Daily. Let him take up his cross daily. And follow me. If you follow God, does it require some effort on your behalf? Don't you have to look at him to know where he's going in order to follow him? Don't you have to willfully make a choice, a willful choice, to follow him? And that's what we need to do. That's all we need, you see. We take that, we, we take that first breath, and God does the rest. It is a choice that we make. It's the effort we take. He says in 1 John, I thought this was a great verse of scripture. The one who says he abides in him ought himself to walk in the same manner as he walked. The one who says he abides in him ought to walk in the same manner as he walks. What's walking? What's abiding? They're synonymous, really. They're the same thing. One seems to be passive and the other seems to be active. But the fact is, it's abiding in Christ. And all through John, and especially chapter 15, he talks about this thing about abiding and how important it is that we abide in him because he promises that he will abide in us. Christ in us, the hope of glory. So this is what's absolutely instrumental to us and why we need to do it. Let's talk about another aspect of walking. And he says in Galatians 5, and this is my favorite verse of scripture because this summarizes it so beautifully summarizes it perfectly. I say, walk, but I say, walk by the Spirit and you will not carry out the desire of the flesh. If we live by the Spirit, let us also walk by the Spirit. Walking by the Spirit is to know Christ intimately. And that brings us to this verse of Scripture. And what a beautiful verse of Scripture it is in Philippians 3, 8, and then 10 and 11. It says, more than that, I count all things to be lost in view of the surpassing value of knowing Jesus Christ, my Lord, of knowing him, that I may know him and the power of his resurrection and the fellowship of his suffering, that I might be conformed, being conformed to his death in order that I may attain to the resurrection from the dead. To know him intimately is to walk according to the Spirit. Abiding, knowing Him. Walking, knowing Him in every way. And this brings us, lastly, to how we are to do this. Walking, essentially, is yielding, obeying the promptings of God's Holy Spirit who is in us. If the Spirit of God is not in you, Paul said, You're none of his. But if you have believed him, if you've been crucified with him, if you have been resurrected with him, and you have, if you believe it, then you are 
living for him. Galatians 2.20 sums it up so beautifully. For I have been crucified with Christ, and it is no longer I who live, but Christ lives in me. And the life which I now live in the flesh, in this body, I live by faith in the Son of God, who loved me and gave himself for me. I have been crucified with him, and it is no longer I who lives. I can know this. I can reckon it to be true. I can present my body to him as a living sacrifice, alive to God, dead to sin. I can walk not according to the flesh, but according to the Spirit of God who empowers me and strengthens me. And by the way, that's another important point I forgot to make a while ago. You know, God doesn't change us. He doesn't try to renovate us. The only way we're going to be like Jesus is not because he changes us or improves us or renovates us, but because he crucifies us. That's the only way it happens. So we accept that work that Jesus did on the cross. If you accept it, you know it, reckon yourselves to be dead to sin, presenting your bodies as alive to God, dead to sin, and walk according to the Spirit, those four conditions enable you to live the normal Christian life. The normal Christian life. You know, see, the fact is, is that this is the life, as Watchman Nee saw it, that God intended through Christ Jesus for every man and woman, every person, not because you had super consecrated yourself to God, not because you had done something making yourself more worthy than others, deserving of this, because you can't. It's impossible. Not because you've done anything to deserve it, or you've done anything at all, but because God has done it in Christ Jesus. It's done for you. It applies to you. Do you know it? Have you reckoned this to be the case in your life? Have you presented yourself to God? Have you made the effort and decided willfully by an act of the will that he's given you, the free choice that he enables you to make, to walk according to the Spirit? Because if you do that, you'll know him intimately. You'll know the surpassing value of Jesus Christ, our Lord. You'll be able to walk according to the Spirit, to live according to the Spirit, even as he himself walked. You'll be able to abide in him accordingly. That's what God is asking of us. That's what God has offered us. This is what God has for us. Every person, no one excluded from this room this day, if you believe Jesus, if you accept his work on the cross, and the shedding of his blood, freeing you from the penalty of sin, knowing that you've been justified by faith, you have right standing before God because he's imputed the righteousness of Jesus to you and to me, enabling us to do that, not because, again, of anything we've done, but by the work of Jesus, you can live the normal Christian life. It's for you, and it's for me, for everyone. Let's pray. Father in God, how we thank you for this fact. How we thank you for what Jesus has done for us, for his shed blood, for his death on the cross, for his victory over death through the resurrection, 
through his ascension to the throne of glory, that he sits now even at the right hand of your throne. Father, he is our Lord and our Savior, our Master and our King of kings and Lord of lords. He is our brother and our friend. He has done this for us, for every man, woman, and child who believe in him. You have made it possible for us by the power of your Spirit living in us, by Christ in us, the hope of glory, to live this way for you. I pray, Lord, that you would enable us to see this, to believe it, to claim it, to appropriate it, to make it part of our life, to walk not according to the flesh, but according to the Spirit, that we might bear much fruit for your glory and honor, and that Jesus might be glorified in us, Jesus, the hope of glory. We ask it in his precious name. Amen.